there is, I think, fairly strong evidence that Molody and his team did penetrate the British Chemical and Bacteriological uh, Research Centre at Porton Down. And there's a fascinating historical parallel here with the poisoning of the Skripals in Salisbury in England in, in March 2018. Welcome back to The Live Drop. My guest is British author Trevor Barnes, who talks about his new book, Dead Doubles about the Portland spy ring, uh, their Portland, not our Portland. In the late 50s, early 60s, Soviet illegal Gordon Lonsdale, also known as Conan Molody, ran a group of spies who managed to penetrate a British research facility at the Portland Naval Base and communicate effectively to Moscow. The compromised intelligence ranged from sonar to biological technologies. A famous counterintelligence investigation led by MI5 was an example of early cooperation between the FBI and MI5, along with revealing the depths and the extent of the Soviet illegals program in Britain, some of whom were likely never identified. Trevor Barnes is an intelligence historian who shares the varied connections of this case to much more at the time. Be sure to check the show notes for references in the talk. Transmission was a little spotty, but there's a lot here. Begin now. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your how you put this book together. I mean, as you as I read it, I was excited because for the first time, it kind of brought together this whole almost community of espionage between the Soviets, the British, and the Americans. Like all the all-stars came out. Rudolf Abel, the Rosenbergs, Manhattan Project, Kim Philby, George Blake, uh, even Jack Barsky, Gordon Lonsdale. In writing this book, there, there's a story, obviously, the, the Portland spy ring, which is compelling. But this book is, uh, not only does it tell that story, but it also tells the story of the investigation. It's a counterintelligence investigation. And also, some ways, a historical investigation that you seem to have been kind of drawn into. And I just wanted to see if you could maybe talk about that experience of, of how this book came together for you. Well, it was a long genesis, Mark, uh, pulling together pieces of an enormous jigsaw. And as you say, the narrative arc starts really from almost the beginning of the 20th century, and in particular, the important period of the 1930s when there was a strong sense with the rise of Nazi Germany that a lot of people were, uh, on the one hand, concerned about that, and on the other hand, with the fate of the relatively new Soviet communist regime in Russia, which many, many people invested their hopes in, and they saw as the, the future at that time and meant that it was a, a great period of recruitment for the KGB. And, and the story of the book, Dead Doubles, um, involved that earlier period right through World War II, then the Cold War, ending up then with actually the collapse of the Soviet Union, because what you've got was a very short-lived, remarkable period in the 1990s when, for the first time, and that this window very rapidly closed. The KGB allowed it, allowed some very limited access to its archives. And then as the 1990s progressed, that door slammed shut. And historians now, whether they're Russian, let alone foreign ones, have no access to any of those archives at all. And in investigating this amazing spy ring, which was quite remarkable in many, many ways, the fact outdoes the fiction, uh, as I discovered diving into it. 
um, goes right up to the current day because um, some of the most remarkable research I, and memorable research was going to Moscow and actually going into the press bureau of the current equivalent of the part of the KGB that dealt with foreign intelligence, currently called the SVR, um, headed by a, a, a man called Sergei Narishkin, and trying to see if they might help. Uh, and that was fascinating, actually going into their press bureau. And round it, you have on the walls a photograph of their KGB all-stars. And amongst them were some of them from the Portland spy ring, in particular uh, the man called Morris Cohen, who in this story figures under the identity of Peter Kroger. So the challenge was to, having collected all this information, somehow make a narrative out of it. And in a previous existence, I had written crime novels, and it struck me that in some ways there was a parallel with one of those nests of Russian dolls. I mean, we all say we see them, we associate them with John le Carre novels, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. But that was actually the key to unlocking the structure of this book. It was you, you take out the outside layer. The outside layer, the start, is the basic story of the Portland spy ring as revealed by the new MI5 documents, remarkable ones released into the British archives that tell the, the bare story of the counterintelligence investigation by MI5. But within that, you then have to go off on deep dives into history to find out what it really means. So by way of example, um, when MI5 had um, done their counterintelligence investigation, a remarkable story in itself in 1960 in Britain, and they arrested the spies on the 7th of January. Um, and by way of background, for those who don't know, there were five spies in the Portland spy ring. There were two British spies. Uh, one was called Harry Houghton. He was a clerk at the British top secret naval underwater research centre at a place called Portland, which is on the coast, not Portland in the States, but Portland on the West Coast in the part of England associated immemorially with the great uh, late 19th century writer Thomas Hardy uh, and, and Dorset. And I'm sure a number of listeners to the podcast have, have read, you know, some Hardy novels, Tesla d'Urbervilles, Far From the Madding Crowd. Anyway, that, that's Portland. Um, and he was there working in this base. He had a girlfriend also there called Ethel G., uh, a spinster who he'd befriended, um, having abused and cast his wife aside. And then there were three other people in the ring, and, and these were, if you like, the hardcore KGB uh, controllers. One of them was in some ways the most remarkable of all, who went under the name of a Canadian businessman, Gordon Lonsdale, but was actually a, a top Russian illegal spy um, whose real name only got revealed considerable time after his arrest. And we'll talk about that, no doubt, in a moment. And then there were these two spies who were originally American, um, whose name was Morris and Lona Cohen. But the point was, um, when the Portland spy wing were all arrested by the British on the 7th of January 
1961. The Cohens were living under false identities. They were living under the name of Peter and Helen Kroger, and they were living completely under the radar of everybody in this West London suburb called Ricelip. Anonymous, privet hedges, bungalows, respectability. Around the back of all the sofas were the Anki Makassars to stop the, the hair grease, the brill cream going onto it, um, cleaning their car on a Sunday morning. And they fitted in perfectly under the cover of being a, believe it or not, antiquarian bookseller and his wife. And everyone know, knew them as Peter and Helen Kroger. And that was the, the names under which they were investigated. And they were arrested under that name, 7th of January, 61. And when they were first arrested, they refused to give their fingerprints. So MI5 and the, the police arm that they use called Special Branch went to court and said, we want fingerprints of these two suspected spies. And the court said, yeah, we order them to give their fingerprints. So a couple of days later, their fingerprints were taken. And then those fingerprints were taken back to the fingerprint department of the famous Scotland Yard. And after a day or a couple of days, someone said, hey, there's a match. These fingerprints match perfectly a set of fingerprints that we got from the FBI in early 1958, almost three years before, belonging to two suspected Russian spies called Morris and Lona Cohen. We have been hunting since, believe it or not, 1950, and no one knew where they had gone. And that in itself was a story. So going back to that point of structure, you've got the investigation, 7th of January arrest, but then you find out that two of the spies are not who they say they are. So you take off that first layer of the doll and you're into the second layer of the doll. And that doll is the Coens. What had they done before? How had the FBI got onto them? And how had we got to 7th of January 1961? And that was the way I structured the book and I tried to make a serious piece of intelligence history. One thing I'd like to talk about, kind of the environment at MI5 and Special Branch at that time. What happened in MI5 was that a little later than the investigation into the Portland spy ring, there was a kind of ring of paranoia that developed within MI5 about Russian penetration. And two of the key figures in that, developing that sense of paranoia and concern, play a minor role in the Portland spy ring investigation. One was a, a man who became quite famous a few years ago, Peter Wright, who wrote a book called Spycatcher. And he was interesting because he was the first scientific officer, i.e. a person with a scientific background, recruited to make MI5 more aware of science and make better use of its discoveries in its work. And he was remarkably successful in many, many ways. But also he had a slightly, in my view, mad side. And part of that was linking up, or was encouraged by linking up with a remarkable counterintelligence officer whose name was Arthur Martin. And Martin had started off in the war as being involved in cryptography and, and decoding. But he was one of the few people on the British side who was inducted into the quite remarkable decrypts that were made in the period after the war of what was known as the Venona decrypts. Now, Venona was guarded with the utmost secrecy on both sides of the Atlantic. And essentially, what it was discovered was that when the KGB in America in World War II were sending messages back to Moscow, they were encoding the messages using uh, one-time pads, which 
if you keep to the encoding system, strictly is unbreakable. But there were some mistakes made by some of the Russians in the enclaves from sending these messages back to Moscow, such that you could get clues to how you decode those messages. And in great, great secrecy, the Americans started to decode some of these messages coming back. And in them, they found uh, the first clues to people like Burgess and McLean and the network of spies that had penetrated the Manhattan Project, the American-led project to find the formula for and create the world's first atomic bomb. So Arthur Martin was inducted into this and was aware of that. He was one of the first people who was fully aware of the extent of Soviet penetration of Western institutions and Western intelligence from the late 1940s, early 50s. This meant he was very, very sensitive to it, and arguably he was oversensitive. He and Peter Wright formed an alliance within MI5, and they became convinced that MI5 was rotten at the very top, and they felt that was what happened with MI5. Um, and in particular, they suspected the man who was at the helm at the very top of MI5, Sir Roger Hollis, of being a Russian agent and or his deputy called Graham Mitchell. And Hollis was at the head of MI5 at the time of the Portland spy investigation. But that paranoia hadn't really developed at that stage. For the record, there was a, a massive big uh, investigation in MI5, which found that there wasn't any evidence that Hollis or Mitchell were agents of the KGB. One, one question I've always wondered a little bit, and this is a little bit off topic, though. Kim Philby, does it still kind of rankle like you as, as, as someone who's, who's English? If you're asking me as um, a British citizen, yeah, I mean, Philby was, was simply a traitor who you know, worked for the Russians. But Philby was a highly intelligent man. He had his reasons at the time. If you read his interesting, very remarkable autobiography, My Silent War, he sets out why he worked for the KGB and worked for the Russians. And it goes back to that atmosphere in the 1930s when there was very much a sense that the future really, to some extent, belonged to the Soviet Union and that right-minded, progressive people who turned a blind eye to what was already known about the prison camps and Stalin's oppressive regime. I mean, the full the full story of it was fully known. But people also did willfully turn a blind eye to it. I mean, if you read, you know, Sinclair Lewis or people in the 1930s, evidence was already coming out. People in America didn't know about those things. But they looked at the collapse of capitalism as they saw it, you know, the, the depression that had swept through America in the early 30s, Dust Bowl, that allied with the rise of Hitler. They felt they needed to help the Soviet Union to resist, you know, Nazi Germany and the undoubted horrors that were going to unfold in Europe. And then you had the Spanish Civil War, which became a kind of touchstone for progressive people in Europe at the time. So, I mean, Philby is, is history, but I think people have become more and more aware of the way in which he was protected by the British establishment, the, the friends around him, and the amateurishness, really, of MI6 at that time. And Ben McIntyre, as a British author, has written a very good book called A Spy Among Friends, which is his account of Philby. And to some extent, I think some of the British obsession with Philby is fostered by the fact that MI6, for reasons that they would argue are perfectly legitimate, have still not revealed their documents. So you get the full story in odd little snippets which come out, which, which feed the kind of paranoia of saying, well, was he helped by someone else in the establishment to 
carry on for so long. Who else was involved? Oh, it was the Cambridge Six? Um, who was the number? I mean, uh, who was the other one? Yeah, it took a long while for John Cairncross, you know, number five, to be revealed. You know, you have Michael Strait, and uh, you know, he was part of the Cambridge Five. But you, you know, Anthony Blunt, and it was symbolic, really, of the the kind of rottenness at the heart of the establishment in the 1950s, early 60s, and you know, the the way in which that Philby was allowed, frankly, to escape. On the other hand, I think one has to cast your mind back to the period and, and how difficult it was with the legislation at the time to successfully prosecute spies. And it was very difficult unless someone confessed. Very often you didn't get the evidence that enabled you to convict in front of the jury. And this was one of the reasons why the Portland spy ring was interesting, because it was one of the cases where MI5 because they'd had some unsuccessful prosecution, were very careful to collect all that evidence. And even with all the strong evidence they had, the safety deposit box of Gordon Lonsdale, finding all the spy paraphernalia, uh, evidence from the MI5 watchers about the behaviour of Gordon Lonsdale, also all the evidence which was found in the bungalow out in the West London suburb of Ricelip, where the couple, Peter and Helen Kroger, Real names, Morris and Lona Cohen, were living and they were operating from there. It's only when MI5 had really, they thought, collected all the evidence from that bungalow. And some of it took a long while to find. I was interested in the technology of, of the period. I'd love to hear you describe what they found in the deposit box of, of Lonsdale. But when they searched the Kroger's home, it was a transmitter. And that was something the Russians were really worried about falling into Western hands. And I, I couldn't really understand where they'd kept it. What happened was that the Morris and Lona Cohen had bought this bungalow. And it turned out when MI5 investigated it carefully after the arrest that they'd, they'd chosen it very carefully. And in fact, they'd gone to visit it with Gordon Lonsdale, who, and it took several months in 1961, after the arrest, with an amazing bit of international cooperation to establish who this guy, Gordon Lonsdale, really was. They bought this bungalow and they chose it specifically because they knew there were a series of routes that you could walk to where you could evade pretty easily people who'd follow you. Then the bungalow was close to a major US Air Force RAF base where there was lots of radio transmission because the Krogers were essentially the communications specialists for the Russian illegal Gordon Lonsdale. Their job was to help him get the secrets out of Britain. A number of things were so well hidden, it took over a week for things to be found. And in particular, they couldn't find the radio. I mean, they found an old-style radiogram, a valve radio, and up in the hidden inside the attic, they found a long, long aerial that was draped around. But they felt there had to be more to it than this. First of all, that the police looked around and they couldn't find anything. And then MI5 brought along Peter Wright and his boss. And they went down into the, the basement. Essentially, there was a half cellar. There was a trap door that you opened. And that took a while to find because it was hidden under the, the gas oven. You had to move the gas oven and then you pulled up a piece of the liner, linoleum, that was all, and there was a trap. Then you went down into the half cellar and... They had to look around there, but they couldn't, first of all, see anything. But when the MI5 people arrived um, a week after the arrest, they found that there was a, a little patch of the rough concrete on the floor that had been moved. And underneath was basically a concrete slab where there was a section that looked like a lid 
So they levered that out. And inside that, they found another kind of long slot. And inside that, they found what was known as a flash transmitter that was state-of-the-art Russian radio transmission equipment. And it's called a flash transmitter uh, because what it did was it enabled the user of it to essentially use a small mini typewriter. So you had the original plain text message in the secret. You would dictate it to the person who would then transmit it, turn it into sort of code, which you would then put onto this tape in terms of encoded dots. And then you wound it up and then you put it onto this machine with the radio and it would transmit it. Basically, the tape would go through the machine and transmit it in a few seconds. It would be a kind of bat squeak of noise into the ether and it would be received in Moscow. And that, of course, meant that the chances of interception were minimal. So one of the first things that MI5 did was send this bit of equipment to Britain's code-breaking agency, the famous GCHQ. GCHQ had released a certain number of documents into the British archives that enabled us to piece together for the first time just how crucial their role was. And this is partly connected with the remarkable inquest that the British government held into the Portland spy ring after the arrests. The full GCHQ record has not been released. GCHQ were intercepting and decoding a number of the radio messages which Gordon Lonsdale himself was sending back to Moscow. And that technology was interesting as well. It was called Rafter, where they could, they could sense the frequency that he was listening to. Could you explain that, or do you understand that? For those who are kind of intelligence geeks and know a bit about the Portland spy ring, there is a, a bit of a controversy about the role that Rafter played. Essentially, Rafter was a form of technology that enabled you, if someone was, someone was transmitting from a particular source, you would essentially put a beam onto that source, and that will enable you to say, right, that's transmitting, and enable you to work out what its frequency was. So you could intercept radio transmissions. Now, Peter Wright, in his Spycatcher book, rather says, oh, of course, Rafter, that was this amazing technology, and I, Peter Wright, played a major role in developing this technology. Mm-hmm. When you talk to people who worked at GCHQ, they say it was slightly more complicated than that. And there were a number of people who were involved with this. What seems to have been happening, according to Peter Wright, was that when Gordon Lonsdale, the, the Russian illegal, had left the UK when he was under observation by MI5, he just suddenly disappeared at the end of August. And no one knew where the hell the guy had disappeared to. And MI5 were hoping he'd come back. When he did come back, he took a room, a a small couple of rooms in a big block of kind of 1930s style flats near London's Regent's Park, a place called the White House, which is now actually a a hotel, a a Malia hotel. And MI5 took over the apartment next door. And they, first of all, put a bug in through the wall. They drilled through the wall and put a, a sound bug to pick up any conversations inside. But also, according to Peter Wright, they set up this rafter equipment so that they could tell when Gordon Osdale in his flat was transmitting material back to Moscow. And that a, a line was connected between that flat where they based a GCHQ operative back to GCHQ to feed back the encoded material to then be decrypted. Certainly, there was a GCHQ operation, and certainly they successfully intercepted and decoded a number of the messages which Lonsdale sent back to Moscow. 
but there's nothing in the papers that confirms 100% that Rafter was installed there. So it's a, it's a fascinating story. It's one of those kind of, in that case, a kind of minor mystery that still remains about this absolutely fascinating and crucial spiral. You were able to kind of glean into the personalities of these investigators like um, Ewell and uh, I, I think White. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. They had, and also the, the different attitudes they had toward the players in the Portland spy ring. I mean, Houghton was kind of looked down upon, but they almost had a kind of a grudging respect for Gordon Lonsdale. One of the fascinating parts of me searching the books about the MI5 investigators, because before the files were declassified, it was only known that Charles Elwell was one of the investigators. In fact, it was thought he was the investigator. No one knew that there was this man, David Henderson White, who in fact started the investigation. In the start of 1960, when this whole thing kicked off, he'd just been made head of a section called D2. D was counter-espionage, and D2 was Polish and Czech affairs. And having contacted his family, which was a long and complicated issue, they were incredibly helpful and cooperative and very kindly shared his personal papers with me and his story. He'd been in special forces in World War II. And also to learn about his personality, he was a very cultivated clever man, played the piano immaculately. He was a fan of you know, the great German composer, J.S. Bach. He was well-read. He'd also been unlucky in love. And it turned out that when he started the investigation, it was when he was just met the woman who's become his wife. During his investigation, they, they fell in love and decided to get married. And he got married during the investigation. So all of this, he was, he was managing the turmoil in his personal life as well as running what turned out to be, in some ways, the biggest counterintelligence investigation MI5 had run during the early Cold War. And to find out about him was fascinating. And the way in which this investigation, which just started originally with a complaint about this man, Harry Houghton, down in Portland for allegedly sending an anti-Semitic letter Suddenly, this CIA agent codenamed Sniper produced evidence saying, look, there was a man who was recruited in Warsaw in 1951, worked in the naval attache's office in Warsaw. He then this agent had been sent back to Europe and London and then had been posted somewhere within the Admiralty. White had to investigate all of that. He, he linked up with a man who he knew obviously pretty well at MI6. He was also interested in Polish affairs, a man called Harold Shergold who is, is fascinating because he, he was the guy who later on got the confession out of George Blake and was an, renowned still. He is a hero in MI6 as being this great Soviet bloc specialist, uh, how White linked up with him. And then when the investigation widened and Gordon Lonsdale had been sort of brought into the investigation, how we, for the first time, brought Charles Elwell into the investigation because clearly White wanted someone from his section, D2, the Polish and Czech section, where Elwell was, to, to start looking into this mysterious man, Gordon Lonsdale. And so he wanted someone he could implicitly trust, you know, and, and Elwell was the man. You were a crime novelist as well. I mean, doesn't Elwell strike you as the classic private eye or investigator? I mean, you said, you said that he had a real eye for the unusual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he himself was also a remarkable man. And although I discovered bits and pieces had been written about him, Charles Elwell's absolutely remarkable wife, um, Anne Elwell, who was 
a really, really clever woman who, who was also working in MI5. She worked in MI5 throughout World War II, um, based at Blenheim Palace, associated with Winston Churchill. And, and she read and spoke several foreign languages. And after World War II, she was sent by British intelligence out to help translate the papers of the uh, Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, for example. And then in MI5, she was involved working with Alpha Martin and others on trying to work out just how bad the Soviet intelligence penetration was of, of Western intelligence. And but it's around that time she met Charles Elwell. And um, in MI5 at the time, there was a rule that you could not have any married people working, both of them, in MI5. One of them had to leave. Of course, in that time, it was a very sexist period. Still, all, all establishments were that was simply sexism was prevalent everywhere. And the assumption was always, well, the woman would... Of course, she'd give up and she would go and be a housewife at home and bring up any children. And that was what happened with Anne Elwell. But fortunately, her remarkable talents were spotted when the Elwells moved out to Singapore uh, to work for essentially the far or a part of the British intelligence Far Eastern operation base at Singapore. And she was recruited to work for a part of British intelligence called the Information Research Department, which was essentially producing British propaganda to counter Soviet propaganda in across the world. So she had close links with MI5 and MI6. So he was remarkable. He, he was a great dancer, conversationalist, bon viveur, and he had remarkable kind of personal, moral, and, and physical courage. This seems to be a story as well of a constellation of couples <laughs> in some ways. I mean, you have White, who was married, involved in marrying one of his... Um, secretaries i mean you have the you know obviously the i almost said the rosenbergs but you know the krogers there's this yep. couple um the russian uh, illegals program they they really favored sort of sending people out as couples of course you have you know harry houghton and his most likely dysfunctional relationship with ethel g yeah <laughs> <laughs> once collecting the interface just a pitch i think daniel craig should play harry houghton and, and, and just for a little change of just for a little a little he might want a little switch you know from something yeah, yeah, quite yeah. as polished yeah there, there are a lot of couples that are working together but lonsdale was was single he was he, he presented himself as single and was gordon lonsdale but in fact it emerged when his real identity was found out several months after his arrest as uh being married to um a rather long-suffering wife Galena. Yeah, it was in Turner, uh, but the second marriage for the long-suffering Galia, and she had a daughter called Elisabetta, and then when she married this man, his real name was Konon Trofimovich Molody, they had a son called Trofim, who was born while Gordon Lonsdale, uh, Conon Molody, uh, was living in London undercover. I, I did hope to meet Elisabetta in Moscow when I was out there researching. In fact, I was meeting a former uh, KGB officer and someone else, and they, they rang her. She was living about 60 miles out of Moscow, and I was there when I, they spoke to her, and they were asking if I could go and see her. And at the time, she sounded you know, quite open to the idea, but there was no time in that first research visit. So I hoped to visit her again on the second visit, but by that time, she'd disappeared in that the contact numbers didn't work anymore. She was still alive, 
Now, whether a message had gone out to say, don't talk to Western investigators, journalists, I don't know. But they're in the book. There is a photograph of Elisabetta standing at her father's grave because Russian intelligence operatives and former people are incredibly loyal in terms of honouring the memory of their heroes, of which these three illegals, Conor Molody and the, the Coens, are really big stars in the constellation. So there's a photograph of her in the book, but sadly there was no chance to meet her to ask about her memories of her father. Uh, in your book, you also met, one thing you don't think about is once these people are exfiltrated back to Moscow or they're sent back, and there was this... Uh, it's the spy swaps, you mean, yeah. The, the spy swaps, and then they were, of course, in your book, you have a spy swap. You know, it's not at the Glinica Bridge, it's at the Heerstrasse, which is a little more working yeah, yeah. class, a little more working class. But, <laughs> once, but once they got there... You know, was this was there a place that they do they hang out at the Pushkin Cafe? You know, with George Blake and and all the rest of them. Apparently, they would run into each other, but they weren't encouraged to stay in contact. Going back to what we were saying about the structure of the book and the the fact that you've got this matrushka, you know, set of dolls, you start stripping them away, and you then get back towards the end of the book at finally finding famous Russian spies in reality went back to Moscow. Right. And you're looking at, on the one hand, this image that's developed of them. Cohen's and Molody had postage stamps in their name with pictures of them and printed and used in the Soviet Union, such as their hero status. It's also true of Kim Philby and others, but it's remarkable for these three illegals. They're really, really important figures. They're, they're icons. To find out you know, that and then to say, well, actually, what did happen to and for example, when Molody went back, he was, and I was told this by a, a very interesting senior former KGB man called, charming man called Mikhail Yubimov, just a little bit younger than Molody, and he met him in Moscow because Molody used to come along and lecture at the uh, Red Banner Academy for Future Russian Spies. He said he was absolutely charming, but a bit of a fantasist. But the reality was that when he came back to Moscow, he was treated with incredible suspicion because they were worried that he'd been turned by the Western intelligence people. Could you really trust him? You know, so his life was quite difficult, and he had to kind of obviously just keep up the, the position of saying, no, I was completely loyal to you, this is what happened. And in the end, they, they trusted him, came back and lectured, and then tragically he, he died at a picnic in 1970. And But you're right, I mean, they were kind of, treated with great suspicion by the KGB so that when Molody and the Coens, for example, met other Western spies, the KGB spied on them and then told them not to meet them again. They were determined to keep them apart. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Coens weren't allowed, for example, to meet Molody. And you've got to bear in mind that they were very, very intimate friends with Molody. I mean, when they were working together in Britain from 1955 to their arrest at 60, 61. Apart from perhaps the odd person in the Russian embassy who they would link, because the illegals would always have a contact in the Russian embassy who would help service their needs in terms of drops of information, because there were methods of getting the information back. Some of them were, were drop sites where they would leave information and they would be serviced possibly by people from the embassy, possibly by an illegal. So there was that contact. But Obviously, Molody, Gordon Lonsdale, he had to keep this front up with all the people around him, that he was this jukebox businessman. 
And similarly, the Coens had to keep up this front of being an antiquarian bookseller. So when Gordon Lonsdale came out to spend weekends with them in their bungalow, they could relax for the first time. They could actually talk about things honestly. So they developed this friendship. And so it was really cruel, actually, that the KGB kept them apart. The KGB were paranoid that these Western spies would get together and do something that was inappropriate. Wasn't there a play written about Guy Burgess? Yeah, there was. um, um, Alan Bennett wrote a really good play called An Englishman Abroad. Mm-hmm. That was all based on Guy Burgess and him being back in Moscow. And uh, there was a meeting with a British intellectual. There was actually a very interesting play called A Pack of Lies, which is based on the Krogers and their time in Ryslip, written by a man called Hugh Whitemore. And it was an amazing success in Britain. It had Judy Dench playing the wife of the family in whose house opposite to the Krogers, MI5 set up there. Observation post. Searchers family. Exactly, yeah. And again, the story of, of what happened there in that household is told for the first time through these MI5 documents. And I got a remarkable story from Charles Elwell's son, which had never been made public before. The searchers were getting really freaked out by the fact that upstairs they had these MI5 watches. And at any moment, Helen Kroger might come round. And they were saying, look, we, we'd quite like you to leave. <laughs> and, and that would have been a disaster for MI5 because, again, visiting the bungalow, which I, I did today, that's it's at the end of this sort of cul-de-sac, sort of no-through road. So there's nowhere else to go. And there's one house opposite where you could set up an observation post. There were so few cars in streets at that time. If you had a car sitting there for more than five or ten minutes, you would be an obvious sitting duck and in terms of giving the game away that you're under observation. And this is before the times of, you know, CCTV cameras and and everything. And so MI5's high-tech observation was to have officers with binoculars and long-range telephoto lenses in observation posts to keep watch on, on people. And they'd have a rotor of officers who would keep an eye open on what was going on. And the only place they could realistically do this was in this house opposite to where the Krogers lived. And so this message came back to Charles Elwell. And he kind of, the story that he told was that the husband, um, Mr. Search, kind of set out these concerns and basically was pushing pretty hard, saying, we we quite like you to leave. And there was just a few seconds when Charles Elwell, the son, said his dad had to make up his mind. You have to work out, can I trust this man? Because my judgment is the only way I will get his continued cooperation is by telling him more than I should. And he basically took that decision at that moment, probably, you know, without any approval higher up in the office. And it worked. The conversation explanation from Elwell, he said, okay, you can stay. The neighborhood, the Krogers, they knew enough not to be too mysterious. It, you describe Helen Kroger kind of making the rounds in the neighborhood and talking to the neighbors and chatting them up. It's almost like she had to have like a fake Facebook profile. Oh, I think so. I mean, she was naturally an extrovert. And she, I think, was, you know, known around the neighborhood as being like that. Gay Search, the, the daughter from the Search family, tells the story of how, you know, she used to cause kind of relative scandal in a small C conservative neighborhood by by wearing pants 
You know, I mean, women were expected to wear dresses and skirts, not going around in pants. And, you know, she whistled all the way as she walked down Cranley Drive. And, you know, she, she would say these kind of things that were very shocking in your face to staid English people living in a suburb in 19, in the late 1950s. So she was a real kind of splash of colour in, a, in a, a rather drab, austere post-war Britain. So, I mean, I think her cover was to attract attention to herself, mm-hmm. whereas her husband, you know, was much more restrained and he, he was much more careful about what he said. But they, they were very particular at being friendly, but they never really invited people into their home and stayed for very long. I mean, when the police and MI5 pieced the picture together, they discovered that they, no one really knew the, the Krogers really, really well. You mentioned something that I thought was interesting where Morris... Yeah, Morris Cohen, yeah. Morris Cohen, was, he was a teacher, and I think Jack Barsky mentioned it in his book, where Barsky had feeling pretty confident with his English and his ability to speak English, and he sort of put this term together, like, oh, are they going to ironball that building? And you wrote that in your book, and I'm just sort of wondering... I mean, for me, that that struck me because it it seemed that Morris was really good at understanding how maybe an illegal or someone who's undercover or someone who's living a false life can become too comfortable and think that they're actually one of the locals or that they're actually a native who can use language and change words around like that. And um, it seemed like an important point that um, I hadn't heard of before, where he was almost saying, "Fit in, but don't don't believe yourself that you are." you are one of them. The Cones did play an important role in training illegals, and Jack Barsky shows that this happened for quite a long time after they went back to to Moscow and actually what the training consisted of. What I think a lot of people don't realise is that although the Russian intelligence service makes icons of these famous illegals, then in fact, numerically, the biggest number of illegals were used certainly in Europe as spies on dissident movement. And that essentially was what Jack Barsky's originals was set up. Numerically, a minority who were trained up to go into Western countries to actually spy. And it was a very, very difficult job. And many, many of them also fell by the wayside. And this indeed was the reason why a number of the top illegals got exposed, whether it be Rudolf Arbel, who... His real name was Willie Fisher, born in Newcastle in England, but ended up being more Russian in some ways than the Russians. He was betrayed by a guy of Finnish origin called Heyhanen, who was sent out to be his, his sidekick number two. Then there was a, another guy called Evgeny Brick, who was a, a famous illegal in Canada, who basically his downfall was caused by having an affair with a Canadian woman whose husband was working for the Canadian military. And he started hitting the drink as well. And the combination of all those factors meant that he was pretty unreliable. And then the final reason for his demise was that there was a mole inside the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who betrayed him. So he, he basically became a cropper. And so it's a really, really tough role. One of the reasons why the Russians understandably, made such icons of people like Cohen's and Molody was that they really do respect the, the role of an illegal. It's a really, really tough role to play. And undoubtedly, the Cohen's played this role, as Jack Barsky showed, in terms of 
training them up to be aware of the things you need to be aware of. And and you can be caught out in the most surprising way. You do need to definitely, I think, to be a successfully legal, need to have a little bit of the dramatic, by which I mean acting gene in you. You, you want to be a kind of thespian, I think, to, to do it. So you can think quickly. I mean, Molody, when he was spy-swapped back into the Soviet Union, after his death, uh, many, many years later, actually, his son co-authored a book that's alleged to be partly based on Molody's memoirs, published only in Russian. Yeah, another strange irony, I guess the KGB wanted him to write a memoir or some, something of his accounts, but they wanted to they wanted to monitor closely, so Kim Philby actually rewrote that? If you piece all the evidence together, it's, it, with many of these things, you can't be 100% sure, but it is beyond reasonable doubt that the set of memoirs, which were written under the name of Gordon Lonsdale and published in 1965, purporting to tell the story of Gordon Lonsdale's life and his time spying in the UK, were written by Kim Philby. And this is based on various bits of evidence, including that from Philby's former wife. She says that Philby used to go off to an office somewhere under the control of the KGB and would basically just write and drink himself into oblivion while he, he wrote this. The book was interesting in that when it came out, Charles Orwell, the MI5 investigator, went through it very carefully and picked it apart to find the things that were inconsistent with what was known by 1965 about the real man who was pretending to be Gordon Lonsdale, Connor Molody. Again, one of the fascinating things about the story is how it's only when you piece stuff together at the end that you really have a, a kind of fairly good 360 degree view in particular of what the life was of Conlon Molody and the spying that he'd done and the same for Houghton and G and what they'd done and the lies that they'd told. You strip away the untruths and you slowly, slowly work your way towards what I hope anyway is as close to the truth as anyone has got to so far. Oh, I have a question though. You're far ahead. Who is Agent K? Don't know. Nobody knows. One of the remaining mysteries is exactly how wide the spy ring was that was run by Connor Molody while he was in the UK. Because when Gordon Onsdale came back from his trip abroad, he basically disappeared at the end of August 1960 and reappeared in the middle of October. Um, no one knew at the time where he'd gone. and he emerged later. He'd obviously gone back to Russia. In fact, MI6 did some work going through links with the, the Dane, Danish intelligence service, and they, they worked out what his route was back to Russia. You, you start thinking about what actually his spying consisted of. But at the time, for example, when he returned and the radio messages which Molody was sending back to Russia were intercepted, they talked about two agents, Shah, codename Shah, and agent codename Asya. And they were Harry Houghton and Nestle G. And no other agents were mentioned. Now, it could be because there weren't any other agents. And this was a story that Roger Hollis told the inquest inquiry, as I called it, afterwards. He said, well, there was no evidence. And indeed, there wasn't. When uh, the MI5 watchers followed Gordon Lonsdale around, as from you know, July 1960, when they were first tipped off to him, they didn't follow into any other agents. But of course, the absence of evidence isn't the same as evidence of absence. So I think there was very, very strong evidence that 
we know of at least one other agent because this is in the the SVR official history called Agent K. And the description of Agent K does not fit in with the the other agent who we know as a matter of pretty much fact. And Molody ran for an incredibly short period. Now, this was a woman called Melita Norwood, otherwise known as a granny spy, who was a very, very successful long-term agent of the Russians. When Matrokin, with all his archival material, he revealed for the first time that Melita Norwood had been a spy for this long period, made headlines. But also that for a very short period of only about four to six weeks, Melita Norwood was run and controlled by Molody. And Norwood apparently felt that Molody was not sufficiently serious, too much of a playboy, uh, where she was very austere and a lifelong devoted communist. And she wanted to go back to be run by somebody else, uh, probably connected with the embassy. The description of her does not fit in at all with the description in the Russian source of Agent K, seemed to have been run for at least one year by Molody. Then if you go to other Russian sources, there is, I think, fairly strong evidence that Molody and his team did penetrate the British Chemical and Bacteriological Research Centre at Porton Down. And there's a fascinating historical parallel here with the poisoning of the Skripals in Salisbury in England in, in March 2018. Again, this can't be proved, certainly seen very, very strong evidence that had at least, they, the KGB, had at least one spy, Molody had one spy in Porton Down, who seems, in my view, to have got out some information about what was the development of this first ever synthetic nerve agent by the British called VX, VX nerve agent, first of all developed by ICI, and then the British developed it further with the Americans and the Canadians at Porton Down. And I think when the Russians and their sources talk about this deadly substance being smuggled out of Porton Down and then provided by the Cohens to a live drop to the Russian embassy in a specially made um, thermos flask, um, I think it's more likely to have been a nerve agent than a bacteriological agent. The thing about when you interpret the Russian sources, Mark, is that there were deliberate attempts by the KGB to muddy the waters for some of these. For example, the Cohen files were looked through by a KGB colonel called Chikov, who I spoke to in Moscow. In, and it's clear that when his book came out based on the Cohen KGB files, that it was all checked through by his ultimate boss, a guy who's a legend in the KGB called Drozdov, who was held as a hero by Vladimir Putin. When um, Drozdov died, a special tribute was paid to him by Putin. And when Putin was in Dresden working for the KGB liaising with the Stasi, he would have undoubtedly been aware of Drozdov and had connections with him because Drozdov was head of the illegal directorate within the KGB at the time. And he's keeping a very careful what to mislead the West would pollute some of the the evidence that was released. And, and I think that that applied to, for example, some of this material about what the penetration was reporting down. What is also intriguing, I'm finding that even now the Russian sources reveal new little tidbits that support some of the story that I tell. I mean, only a week or two ago, I went onto the website of the Russian intelligence service, Foreign Park, called the SVR, and they'd put new material, a line in there about Lona Cohen had gone to Canada and had smuggled out uranium samples. So that, I think, is now confirmed beyond all doubt. But one of the things she was also doing was going across the border and... The Chalk River. To the, yeah, up to the boundary and getting those material, which hadn't been confirmed before.
but we do have a cold war that's going on now. And I guess my question is, what is it, what is it like for you as a, as a journalist or somebody who's a researcher who's going over to Moscow to talk to people? In an extreme, are people following you? Do you have a sixth sense that someone is kind of watching and, and kind of trying to suss out your intentions? Because, yeah, there is some revisionist history going on. And also, if you're you know writing about something that has to do with scriptball, that's got to be a little sensitive. I'm just wondering um, what that's like for you. Well, it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I've always been interested in history. I also like to find out things for myself and not accept a particular story just because it's the dominant narrative. Clearly, you, in my view, you couldn't tell the story of the Portland spying with one of the key figures, Connor Mullady, being a Russian and two of the others being Americans who had been trained and were lifelong people working for the KGB about an operation that had been developed by the KGB in Moscow by their director of this without trying to mine the Russian sources and find out what you could in Russia. And I was hoping that there might be some access to the archives, but I wanted to be absolutely sure. And I mean, I, I rather predictably ended up in a position of confirming that no, yet the archives are closed and there's no way we could let you anywhere near them nor are you going to be allowed anywhere near the KGB headquarters or, you know, their famous spy museum in their headquarters. But, you know, I did go to the SDR press bureau and, as I said, saw this kind of wall of photographs of spies. And I did get through various contacts the ability to talk to some people, a very, very small number of people who did have some knowledge or said they had some direct knowledge of, of these events. It was clear that there was nothing new that was going to emerge while I was there. Former KGB colonel had recently published a, a life of Molody only in Russian. And there was some new fact in there, but not, sorry, there weren't really any new facts. There was a rewriting of material. But I mean, from what I could gather, he'd not been allowed into the archives either. And what's still remarkable is, as far as I can work out, no scholar or anyone who's written about Gordon. Lonsdale Molody has been allowed into and have a proper look through the Molody archives. And this brings us to another remaining mystery, which is, was Molody in any way tipped off that he was being what? Because there are various stories in the Russian sources suggesting that he may have been. And you won't know. I mean, it may well have been that he had some sixth sense as an experienced intelligence operative that he was being watched. And this may have meant that he broke off his contacts with other agents other than Houghton and G. Don't think it was that likely because as Lyubimov, Mikhail Lyubimov told me in a Moscow restaurant, and he, he had ended up as being head of the KGB in Denmark, was a big friend of Gordievsky. He said, if you have even the faintest hint that you are being followed, you do not go and have a meet with one of your assets. That's just, and he said to me, if any man of mine did that, I'd shoot them. Mikhail Yubimov, a highly charming, intelligent man. Because he was a friend of Gordievsky, he came under suspicion after Gordievsky's um, defection to Britain as possibly knowing more about it than he did. Um, Yubimov has remained loyal to the Russian Federation, but he has always had a reputation of, as being someone who's more willing to be outspoken and reveal slightly more than a number of other officers who just tow the, the kind of appropriate line of, of not revealing very much. I'm glad you did that research, though, because it added another aspect of, you know, you said Molodov was, he was suspect when he got back, but then you write that uh, 
like does Delive also knew Harry Houghton, you know, and kind of knew what Gordon Lonsdale was up against. Again, I, I wanted to ensure that to tell the story properly, I think you needed to have a Russian perspective because it's so easy to paint these KGB operatives as formulaic thugs who are kind of humorless apparatchiks who just do the bidding and, and they don't have personality. And in fact, that's not true. They are human beings with personalities that reflect the Western ones have talked about Elwell having a personality different to David White's. That you, and when you got into it, you discovered that Pavlov had a reputation. He was called, you know, one-eyed, you know, and because he had strabismus and he was kind of a self-confident guy. And Dojdalev obviously was this warm, friendly, credible guy, and and people really liked him. And then you got other people like Serov, who had been chairman of the KGB, who was then kind of demoted. And I, in the Russian sources, found this couple of fascinating diary entries that he wrote about the Molody affair after he was arrested. And he was a brutal thug. I mean, you've, you've just got this whole gamut of different personalities. And I don't think you tell the story properly if you don't try and get behind that. I mean, it's not, it's not easy because, of course, you tend to find the official Russian accounts tend to want to make all these people kind of heroes and, you know, they don't want stir up any problems by allowing you behind that kind of veil of efficiency and cooperation and tradecraft and all of that. But the reality was, of course, the Russians vary in terms of their personalities. And also they, they also make mistakes in the same way as the West does. And that's what history is about. It's trying to find out a bit more about getting a bit closer to what really happened. Well, you did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this reading this book, I, I'm just even. T it's been a real, it's been a real privilege to be able to talk to you about it afterwards, and I really appreciate that. But there's just an immense amount of information in a compelling narrative with connections to the, I don't know, the, the canon of Cold War nonfiction espionage. And I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed the book, and um, wanted to say thanks for bringing the dead doubles alive. Well, that's really, really kind of you, and I, I just hope that you kept turning the pages. I did, right into the night. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to take the one dozen decisions. The first one is stripes or solids. Sorry, could you repeat that? Stripes or solids. So what, what are stripes as opposed to salads? No, solids. <laughs> so, solid, like a solid, like a solid a Solid, a solid, I do apologize. Solid. Stripes. Lacare or Ben McIntyre? Against the wall, I would say... Ben McIntyre. Sandbaggers or The Prisoner? The Prisoner. Uh, surveillance or counter-surveillance? Surveillance. Crunchy or smooth? Smooth. Facts or feelings? Feelings. Gordievsky or Penkovsky? Gordievsky. Tolkien or, Tor or Torkelchev? Tolkien. Covert or clandestine? Definitely covert. Black bag or burn bag? Black bag. Matrokin files or Stasi files? Definitely Matrokin. Live drop or dead drop? Always a live drop. Always a live drop. Cool. Well, thanks, Trevor. This has been uh, this has been really great. Thanks for being on the live drop. Oh, thank you for having me, Mark. All the best.